Welcome to the inaugural edition of Acton Unwind. I'm your host, Eric Cohn. Acton Unwind is a new weekly roundtable podcast featuring experts from the Acton Institute that will examine what's happening in America and around the world through the Acton Institute's lens on the world, promoting a free and virtuous society and connecting good intentions with sound economics. This week, I'm joined by Sam Gregg, Acton's Director of Research, and Stephen Barrows, Acton's Managing Director of Programs. Steve, Sam, thanks for joining me this week. Great to be here. Thanks, Eric. So let's start with the eviction moratorium. Um, Big story of last week. So the trail leading up to it is that the CDC somehow reading from statute that it has the power to do this, this uh, government agency puts a, evic- a moratorium on evictions that has been running basically since the beginning of the pandemic. So for over a year, uh, this is challenged in the courts and in uh, the opinion I believe it was Justice Kavanaugh who said that, yes, this is unconstitutional, but it's going to expire at the end of July. So we'll just let it expire rather than stopping it now. And it will give some time for an orderly end to this. Turns out there's not an orderly end to this because uh, President Joe Biden has decided that they're going to reissue this eviction moratorium uh, while doing the, a really peculiar thing in public, which is admitting that he thinks that it's unconstitutional yet they're going to do it anyway. Sam, I want to go to you first. Um, I think there's two levels to this. One is the rule of law problem. The other is the immorality of the policy itself. But let's start with the rule of law problem with all of this. Well, thanks, Eric. Yes, it is a serious rule of law problem when the chief executive who takes an oath to defend the Constitution of the United States says publicly that he has been advised that this particular moratorium is unconstitutional, that the Supreme Court of the United States has said that this type of action is unconstitutional, and yet he's going to go ahead and do it anyway. I think that's pretty much lawless behavior. Uh, The chief executive, in fact, all members of the executive branch, all members of the judiciary, all members of the legislature, all of us as citizens, we don't get to make up law ourselves. We don't get to decide that, okay, we think this is unconstitutional, but we're going to go ahead anyway until until someone else stops us. Now, you know, it's very tempting to say, well, this is just a particular thing that's happened at a particular point in time. Well, it's true, but I think you can point to a pattern of behavior by both sides of politics, frankly, not just, not just Democrats, in which they're very willing to play these types of games, basically to say, well, we're going to do this, we're going to let the clock roll out until someone stops us. Uh, this happened in the, um, the Trump administration, it's happening in the Biden administration, there's lots of administrations that this has happened with, particularly when it comes to these issuing of executive orders. And, you know, there is a place for that. There's clearly a place for that under constitutional law in the United States. But it's also very clear that um, they're not things that can just be made up. A president just can't do whatever he wants. And what's interesting here is that Um, Basically, a lot of executives are acting now on the basis that 
Because it takes so long to challenge these things, because you can't just go immediately to the Supreme Court in most cases, you have to start at a lower level and then eventually appeals will be made up and up and up you go till maybe a year later or two years later you'll get to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court may or may not say, well, this executive order is clearly unconstitutional. Two years has passed since then. Mm-hmm. So someone who is a, who seriously takes their oath to defend and uphold the Constitution presumably wouldn't do these things in the first place. At a minimum, they would say, I assume I have the constitutional authority to do it, rather than say, I don't think I have the constitutional authority to do it, but I'm going to go ahead and do it anyway. This is the triumph of politics over you know, what we would call liberal constitutional in its class- constitutionalism in its classic form. I do believe that from my reading of experts on this, legal experts, that they do think it'll probably take about a month because there's already been a lawsuit mm-hmm. filed uh, to have this overturned. And since the Supreme Court has essentially already ruled on it, uh, they think it'll take about a month. But that seems to me to be part of the strategy here is to just buy some time with all of this. It, to your point, Sam, it is a little evocative of uh, of Andrew Jackson, right? They've made their ruling. Now let them come and force it. Uh so, Steve, I want to go to you. And I, I, of course, I think Sam's right about this, and I think I'm of the opinion personally. We, when we have impeached presidents, we've done it for the wrong things mostly. Mm. That, uh, to Sam's point, I think you can look back through previous presidential administrations, and you can see uh, Trump's uh, taking of money for the border wall again by executive order. You can look at DACA and DAPA under the Obama administration after he'd gone around saying, I don't have the authority to do this and turns around and does it. I think you can also look to George W. Bush when he signed the McCain-Feingold campaign reform legislation. He said, I think parts of this are unconstitutional, but I'm going to sign it anyway. And somebody had pointed out, and I think this is a reasonable with at least regard to that point, that uh, Congress or uh, the Supreme Court had not ruled on that yet. And he was signing what was the will of Congress. Um, these other two examples, including this one with the eviction moratorium, are completely different in that they are just executive made legislation in the absence of action from Congress. Yeah, exactly. You know, the president to, to make just by fiat some uh, disruption to the ordinary process that would occur constitutionally is really uh, of concern. You need to think through, well, what does Congress need to be doing here? And if you, if time is a concern, if time is an issue, there are certain, certain circumstances where the president can act. But in this case, it seems quite clear to me that this could become a pretext for any kind of action in the future. You know, what happens when we have the foxtrot variant of the virus mm-hmm. that suddenly is invoked as a reason to just say, look, we're not going to allow people to be evicted from their homes. And, you know, the other thing that really bothers me ab- about the whole process is that it completely disregards the principle of subsidiarity. You know, we know that there are circumstances that are unique to individuals, and there are going to be cases where individuals probably have uh, a situation where they shouldn't be evicted from their home. But at the same time, there are going to be unique circumstances on various landlords. There are reasons why they absolutely need to be able to continue to get revenue from uh, from the properties that they own and need to remove individuals who are using the pandemic as a pretext uh, to make an excuse for not paying their rent. Now, 
Again, I'm sure there are many circumstances here where individuals have been put out of work, um, they are struggling, and and to have the, the federal government make some blanket rule that applies throughout the whole country. I think in this case, they've used uh, uh, the increased rates of, of the spread of the virus in various counties at the county level, and as I understand it, that covers 90% of the United States. Yes. So, you know, it is, for all intents and purposes, ubiquitous. And so, you know, once again, it goes back to what's the proper functions of the various branches of government? government, how do we apply that then to the principle of subsidiarity and take a look at individual circumstances as opposed to having the president of the United States make a blanket decision on behalf of the entire country? <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, I'm constantly reminded of the piece and commentary from Yuval Levin from maybe about four years ago, five years ago now, which is that Congress is weak because its members want it to be. And Congress did not act on this. They had the opportunity to pass legislation if they wanted to. And to me, th this whole problem is perfectly embodied by what got us to this most recent action from President Joe Biden, which was a single freshman member of Congress, Cori Bush from St. Louis, sleeping out on the Capitol steps. This is activism. This isn't legislation. This is a breakdown in what even the members of the House of Representatives are supposed to be, which is legislators. Like, I, again, I'm reminded of Senator, um, I, I believe it was Senator Cory Gardner, when they thought that the Trump administration was going to rescind the memo in the Justice Department that basically says we're not going to interfere with states that have legalized marijuana, saying, like, you know, I demand that the Justice Department reinstate this. You're a senator. You can submit legislation and have people vote on it to make that policy. But it's not only that Congress isn't doing its job in legislating, its members don't even seem interested in that and think they can get the results that they want in a completely different way. Well, part of that is, of course, that when you legislate, when you're a legislator and you have to make those hard decisions, like this eviction order, right, then suddenly if you are making the decision, then you're accountable you're responsible. Exactly. And that is what a lot of legislatures, I think this is your point, Eric, don't want. They don't want responsibility. They don't want to be held accountable. They'd much rather be able to say, well, you know, we just can't do anything about this. I, you know, I try to highlight the issue by sleeping out the front, <laughs> the front of Congress or whatever. Uh, but, you know, really the, the executive branch is the one that needs to deal with this problem. And in which case you ask, well, what do we have a legislature for? Right. Exactly. This, is, this is where the legislature is where these sorts of things are supposed to be initiated from. They're not even doing that. So, by the way, how it took, what, three days from the time that uh, President Biden said, you know, I don't think this is constitutional based on most scholarship. And then mm -hmm. three days later, he says, on the, on the other hand, I'm going to go ahead and implement well, it. Well, anyway. they, they, yeah, they, they went over it three times to try to figure out if there was a constitutional way to do it. And magically enough, on the fourth time, they found that, <laughs> that magical clause in the Constitution that's like, oh, by the way, yes, you can do this. So, so I'm just waiting for the next shoe to drop. So, you know, I think uh, President Biden has basically resisted canceling all student debt on the same basis. And, you know, I'm not so sure that I have the authority to do that, even though other senators are urging him to do so. Mm -hmm. So how many days is it going to take him to do a fourth review? Yes. Right. And suddenly <laughs> say, you know, on second thought, I think I'm going to go ahead and do this anyway. And then, of course, there's only one person to blame, you know, and that's President Biden. And once again, you don't have legislators are going to be held accountable in their districts for saying, now, wait a second, I saved up my hard-earned cash for years and years and years to make sure I could put a child through college. And next thing you know, 
uh, everybody else who spent money on whatever they wanted to spend it on and took debt, they suddenly have a free ride that, mm-hmm. you know, uh, there would be no accountability then for because legislators didn't act on such a thing. It would just be done by fiat by the president. So I think it's a dangerous precedent. And again, it's not just restricted to President Biden, as Sam noted. It's been happening with other administrations as well. And we really need to have the functions of government operate the way they should have been designed to function to begin with. I mean, it's just a logical continuation of the precedent that's been set that is if Congress is not going to act, then an executive that is supposed to enforce the laws passed by Congress has now decided that that person is also a legislator. And since when does the Center for Disease Control right, weigh right. in on issues like evictions? What comp- First of all, what competence, this is a classic example of, of um, uh, because they're experts in one area, suddenly they're able to talk about things like rent control. But also it's a classic example of overreach by the administrative state, right? So suddenly they're pronouncing on issues that really they have no competence to talk about. This is not f- f- fall into the field of of disease control. This is a question of economics. This is a question of politics. This is a question of contracts. Very basic, very basic element of contracts here. There's two parties to the contract. One party is being basically told your concerns are completely irrelevant. But what does the CDC have to say about this? They have no authority, no competence, and yet they're, you know, this is an example of how these organizations, once you start allowing them to act in this way, then the overreach, the temptation for overreach becomes overwhelming. I'm I'm generally a fan of tradition, but I'm not a fan of this new tradition of all of our institutions seemingly wanting to torch their credibility mm-hmm. with the public by doing things and saying things that are just not their writ. Uh, so, Steve, I want to come back to you because if we rewind to – May of last year, May 2020, at the height of the George Floyd protests, um, the slogan that stuck in everyone's mind and became uh, very much a political and election narrative was defund the police. Uh, You would be forgiven, though, for not remembering that there was another slogan, as is kind of true with all of these protest movements now, that they're rarely about a single thing and you have under this enormous umbrella a whole bunch of issues being shoehorned in there. I, I can even remember this going back to 2001, 2002 in the lead up to the Iraq war where, you know, you would have these protests and it would be, you know, opposing the Iraq war and end nuclear energy. Like <laughs> these things have nothing to do with each other, but they're right. shoehorned underneath. One of the other slogans that was prevalent at the time though was cancel rent. So this is not as if it's come out of the blue. This has been something that has been suggested previously. And the argument, as best I can tell, goes something like this, that people who are landlords aren't really, they're exploiting people. They're not creating value for people. They, um, you, you're seeing this in the conversation around, I believe it's BlackRock is this uh, company that's buying up property around the country that you're seeing people, again, interestingly, people on the left and the right objecting to what's going on here. But that, you know, Landlords aren't a good thing. They don't. They're not a positive thing in society. Steve, defend landlords. 
So, you know, ultimately, as an economist, it all comes down to scarcity, right? I mean, you find a place like San Francisco where you have sky-high rents and, you know, inflating housing prices and nobody can really live in that kind of environment on just ordinary wages. And you have to ask yourself, well, why is that the case? I mean, ordinarily, you would have uh, higher prices leading to increases in supply and motivated individuals to go and uh, find new and creative ways to sublease or rent out various, uh, you know, apartments for individuals so they have adequate housing. Well, very often the case, and it's certainly the case in San Francisco, it's additional regulations which prevent this kind of innovation, uh, what we call nimbyism, not in my backyard. You're not going to build new apartment com- complexes and high-rises in my backyard. And instead, you get individuals who just uh, you know throw rocks at the landlords saying they're exploiting these individuals with high prices. Well, the landlords would would love to increase the supply, and, uh, and you know, home builders would love to increase the supply because there's money to be made here. Uh, and, and unfortunately, it's, uh, you know, misaligned incentives, which are preventing people from getting the kind of housing that they are. So, you know, landlords are serving a very useful purpose. And oftentimes they have no choice uh, because of the regulatory apparatus that they're faced with. They're also they're also meeting a need, right? Because, exactly. look, there's lots and lots of people who have no interest in buying a home, who don't want to buy a home, who are very happy to rent for all sorts. Maybe they, that's what they can afford. Maybe they're at that stage of their life where they prefer to rent rather than own a house. Maybe it's more convenient. Maybe they change jobs very often, which mean they move around the country. Exactly. So so the notion that, that – I mean, I know that there's a, in America there's a lot of attachment to home ownership – Although I think that's changing as well. I think there's a lot of younger people who are a lot less attached to the idea of building and having a home. Like people of the age of Steve and I, we were brought up, you must buy a house, you must buy a house, you must buy a house. And you then to, and then we created policy yeah. to make it easier for almost anyone out there to buy a house. Right. And what we got for it was the 2008 financial crisis. <laughs> yes, exactly. Right. Yeah. right. So, it's a, so this is a very good example of – you know, there are people with different needs, different wants and different desires, and the market is very good at meeting those if you allow the market to do so. And and the types of zoning regulations that Steve was talking about, the nimbyism, that's all enabled by state action. Mm-hmm. So if you really want to understand things like why there is this shortage of housing and, and, and uh, rental housing throughout the United States, it's not the fault of landlords. <laughs> It's the fault of governments trying to fix problems in ways that have turned out to be completely counterproductive. I believe I saw that there are about 8 million landlords in the United States. And again, most of these are not BlackRock right. or these huge corporations that have a ton of rental properties. A lot of them are somebody renting a garden apartment or a basement apartment. They're, they're one individual person. And you can find these stories if you look through them. Maybe we'll throw a couple in the show notes of people who are, you know, they're not this caricature of landlords. They're just a person who's got a room for rent. And now they're stuck in the middle of a nightmare because they have somebody who they in in these worst cases, they're not getting rent from them and they can't evict them and they can't do anything about it. Right. Well, you know, I, I used to, I think it was during the uh, George W. Bush administration where he was really encouraging homeownership, which eventually led in part, and there's, of course, a lot of complicating factors to the, to the boom bust that we had back uh, in 2008. Uh, but I used to ask people, so you're encouraging homeownership. Well, tell me, what is the optimum rate of home ownership in the United States, you know, and then they give me a quizzical look and I would say, now is if this, you know, let's just say the optimum rate was two thirds of all people owning a home. Then of course the question is, is that 
always the case or would it vary based on demographic structure, all the things that Sam pointed out? I mean, certain individuals, it would be bad news for them to go and buy a home because next thing you know, they're going to have to move from state to state. They're going to have to sell a home without getting a sufficient equity to actually make money on it. So anything, when, when people talk about home ownership, when they you know, excoriate re, uh, rent collectors and so forth, they really have certain assumptions that need to be called out. One of the interesting things about that is, remember, was there were a lot of conservatives in That's the right. late 1990s and early 2000s who were encouraging uh, the, then the Clinton administration, whereas where some of this stuff began, and then with the George W. Bush administration, increasing home ownership. And the idea, I mean, the conservative argument was, well, we know that property ownership makes people more responsible. Now, right. people like uh, uh, Aristotle talked about that. Sure. Thomas Aquinas talked about that. When he, the three, some of the reasons that he gave, Aquinas gave for, um, owning property was that it helps you to become more responsible because suddenly you've got to take care of things. So there's a strong argument in favor of um, encouraging property ownership. Sure. But using the state to do this... <laughs> and it, well, it seems to me that these arguments are coming back Yes, now. exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Let's talk about, Steve, something else that... Uh, people seemingly want to get for free, or at least that actors within the state assume that people want to get for free, uh, the idea of free community college. Yes. Um, so you, you mentioned earlier that we may see from President Biden a move to cancel some amount of student debt for uh, people out there who hold it. We don't know if that's going to happen, and we don't know how much it would be, but as the logic that you suggested seems to indicate, it seems likely we may see something like that, and we don't know how that'll shake out legally. But there's also been a push to have community college, which is often a much more cost-affordable option for people who are seeking higher education to get that credential that they would allow them to progress in their career and to earn higher pay further down the road. Right. Now wanting to offer that for free. Well, I mean, you know, I'll do my best John Stossel here, but, you know, I, I thought community college college and education were good. <laughs> Why don't you want people to get it for free? Well, you know, there's a lot of things here. I mean, the first thing to say is that uh, investments in human capital are good, generally speaking. I mean, individuals in the long run, the more education they obtain, the higher their lifetime average earnings. Uh, there are many, many other factors at play, however. When you ask, you know, uh, does it matter whether or not an individual gets a, uh, a Bachelor of Arts in general education versus a Bachelor of Science in chemical engineering? Uh, does the major matter? and lifetime earnings? Oh, yes, it does. It absolutely does. So just simply getting a diploma at a certain level of education does not guarantee higher income or earnings. And I think that's the primary motivation behind the individuals who are calling for free community college. They point to the increase in lifetime average earnings and therefore say we need to find ways to make it more accessible to individuals to invest in their own human capital. The problem is, is that there are many other, uh, in addition to the things I've already described, there are many other things that, uh, that influence what individuals are able to do to obtain a degree, you find often that individuals, it's not just the outright cost of tuition that prevents them from getting their diploma. They have situations at home. They have other costs and expenditures. Suddenly they drop out because they find out that they have a sick parent they have, they have to care for and they aren't able to obtain that degree. So unfortunately, when you try to, to equate free community college to the objective or goal, 
it's a tenuous link at best. And, and in fact, there have been studies that have demonstrated this, that you don't see with the Kalamazoo Promise. Some initial studies show that this privately funded uh, way of getting free education does not necessarily ter- turn into better outcomes in terms of employment and earnings. So, you know, if you're if that's your goal, it's a dubious process to get there. And there are other factors here as well. Isn't part of it, Steve, though, also that now we see, you know, this correlation between, as you mentioned, between um, getting degrees and higher income, the, the higher income level is actually dropping now. In other words, the, the, the expected income, given the tenuous link that there is, mm-hmm. but the expected income is, has been declining for a long time now, perhaps because there's too many people. Sure. Going to college and they're being told this is how you do it. And it turns out that, well, actually, there's other ways of, of acquiring capital. And some of the degrees that you're doing actually turn out to be not that helpful. A- absolutely. I mean, you have a certain degree of credential inflation where mm-hmm. suddenly the signals that are sent, you know, that's one of the things economists frequently talk about is that education and degrees also send a signal about your potential productivity in the marketplace. And the more individuals actually get those degrees, the less valuable that signal becomes. You know, furthermore, one of the things that concerns me is that if you change and make community college free, you suddenly change relative prices, right? So an individual who is, you know, graduating from high school and thinking, you know, I think I'm going to go and get a bachelor's degree because that will be a good long-run investment for me in my future, if suddenly they're tempted by a two-year free community college education, they might actually substitute, right, a bachelor's degree they would have otherwise obtained for the shorter community college and harm their long-run earnings as a result. And in fact, studies have begun to show that this substitution effect occurs. And so I think that's another real uh, red flag about trying to make community college free. We have this whole industry that is dedicated to getting people people once they graduate from high school to go to college that that is just expected as the next thing that you're supposed to do. And and Steve, you're right that the argument that is often made for that is that, you know, this is the best way to ensure higher lifetime earnings and all that, that that, that's the financial benefit that it's going to yield. Um, And I'm reminded of a point made by Charles Murray in his book Coming Apart that the problem with the elite in our society is not that they preach bad things, although, I mean, I'm sure we'll get into on this podcast that now they are preaching some very problematic things. That book came out a while ago, but that they don't preach what they practice, that they live a certain way, but they don't tell other people that it's valuable. There is something else that you can do if the goal is to have that increase in lifetime earning potential. There is something else that is highly correlated with increasing your lifetime earning potential pretty much equal to that of getting a college degree. Do you know what it is? What's that? Getting married. Oh, there we go. Yes, right. <laughs> we encourage kids starting as early right. as, you know, my, I've got a fifth grader and a second grader. And I remember when my fifth grader, I think, was in first or second grade, they had the teachers come to school in, you know, sweatshirts or T-shirts of their university. They start talking about it that early. And we encourage kids that after they graduate from high school, you got to go to college, you got to go to college, you got to go to college. But we don't make the same kind of encouragement for people to get married. We don't make the same kind of push for that. And I just think that, to me, that's interesting and telling. Michael Novak, who, uh, of course, the late Michael Novak, who had a lot to do with the Acton Institute right from the very beginning, uh, he used to say there were three things you needed to do. One was, what was it, Um, uh, finish high school, get a job, get married. Mm -hmm. Now, 
college degree was not part of that trinity that he mentioned, but he he emphasized the the marriage thing as well because he said there's a very high correlation between marriage and the type of stability and responsibility that 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 produces and people's higher earning income. And of course, um, when people are in in unstable relationships. I mean, that's usually a big sign of that they're going to have some big problems moving ahead when it comes, at least economically, for example. But I, I think that's, I think there's a lot of insight into that. And I think that point about um, the, the quote unquote elite doing one thing and saying another. So this, the same thing goes with religion, by the way. So if, in the United States and increasingly in, um, in fact, it's already well advanced in European countries, religious practice has become a middle class phenomena. Right, so it's not blue collar people generally are not going to church. They're not involved in the religious organizations, and yet we have many people who, from the quote unquote elite, who are constantly attacking religion and saying how bad it is, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But I'm pretty sure a lot of them go to church pretty regularly and are actually quite involved in some sort of religious organization. So it's that double sort of standard, which I think is. Um, is very prevalent when it comes to the discussion of a lot of these questions. The same people are also have also been trashing marriage for the past 40 years as well, right? And yet, guess what? They tend to be married. Exactly. Yeah, the double standard. And by the way, the Georgia Center for Opportunity is very good on this, what mm-hmm. they call the success, success sequence, mm-hmm. right? right? To doing things in a certain order. And again, you know, getting a college education is not for everybody. Now, I was, you know, used to teach in college for, for many years and I'm a big advocate of uh, increasing human capital. But nevertheless, you can't use this one size fits all. Once again, at the federal level saying we're going to let any American get a community college for free. And oh, by the way, if, he, if reducing inequality is one of your goals, it's going to do the opposite. The people who take advantage of free college education the distributions are overwhelmingly in the middle and upper middle class families, not the lower income. And so it's not going to solve an inequality problem either. And what I think, too, is specifically about community college is, you know, I took some classes at community college mostly to get some prereqs for the uh, degree that I got at a four-year university out of the way. But when you look around the classroom at community colleges. These are you know, largely people who are not immediately coming out of high school. Um, I'm reminded of a friend of mine who started right out of high school at a four-year university, dropped out after a year and a half, went back and got a degree when he was 27. Now, he got it from a four-year university, but nonetheless, what struck him was, that, as he put it, I would have hated myself back when I was 18 and just starting college like that because he was in class with all these people who just didn't care, didn't have an investment, either their parents or alone was paying for them to be there. And community college, it strikes me as likely that a lot of those people are there. They have skin in the game. They're paying for it themselves. They're there for getting the specific utility of what they're learning and the credential that they're going to get. That it's a almost a better model right now of a higher education system working the way that it should rather than the four-year degree programs at universities that we see that there's so much conversation about and we – May have an opportunity to talk about this again, depending on what happens with student debt. But I want to go now to uh, overseas. And overseas in Hungary, Tucker Carlson from Fox News was speaking at uh, some big conclave over the weekend. He did his show from uh, Budapest the entire week. You've got this big focus on some parts of the political right on 
Hungary and Viktor Orban's regime there. Uh, you have uh, Rod Dreher from the American Conservative has been living there this summer, which I think is interesting that rather than follow his own Benedict option, he's gone somewhere else apparently to try to find that more ideal society. So, Sam, I want to go to you first. What um, What is with the fascination with Hungary? Well, there's several things going on. The first is that um, Hungary is seen by the European Union as its bad boy, right next to Poland, right? Because Hungary doesn't buy into gender theory. It doesn't accept gender ideology. In fact, it's going to have a referendum in which it will be asked – People will be asked, uh, do you, do, are you happy with banning these sorts of things from schools? And, of course, the European Union will say, this is terrible. How can you do this, et cetera, et cetera. So there's, a, there's, a, there's an internal culture war that's going on within the European Union between basically East and Central Europe, so Poland, Hungary, and pretty much everyone east of that, and a lot of Western European countries where there's a much more liberal views of these things, but also a very clear ideological commitment. So for a lot of people around the world, Hungary is sort of the at the epicenter of a lot of these particular fights. That's one thing. The second thing that's fascinating a lot of American conservatives is that they're looking at Hungary and saying, look, this is an example of a country in which you can use the government and the state to produce particular outcomes. And they're thinking particularly of population and population decline, which is a problem in Europe. It's also a problem in the United States now. It's a problem just about everywhere. It's everywhere. Every society. This is Except this is for a, Israel, I believe. Except for that's right, except for Israel. And th- this is this is really interesting because Hungary is cited by, let's call them integralist thinkers, some of these national conservative thinkers, as an example of a country where they've proactively used government policy to increase or at least reverse the population decline. They say it's getting back to where it should be, which is basically 2.1 children per, per women per woman if you don't want an, an overall decline. I think that's the number. Unfortunately, there's a lot uh, more and more work has been done on this, and it's been shown that this actually these policies in Hungary have not moved the needle at all when it comes to population. There was a very interesting debate in uh, public discourse about this very subject, and there was a person, in a prominent integralist, Gladden Pappen, saying Hungary is an example for family policy, la 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 la, and there were some other conservatives who wrote in saying actually it's not, and here's the facts mm-hmm. about family policy and government spending. And so I think this is so. This is what we're seeing. This fascination with Hungary is playing into some of these internal debates on the right that are going on in the United States now about the role of the government in the economy, how government policy, economic policy, can or cannot shift the needle on things that conservatives tend to be concerned about, like family and population levels and things like that. So I think that's that's part of what's going on. so the the sort of the anti-EU thing, internal American discussions, but also I think it's sort of it's sort of where the 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 popular moment has gone. So like a lot of people are just following the crowd, mm-hmm. if you like, mm-hmm. on this particular issue. 
Uh, and also there's a lot of – there's some conservatives in the United States who are very critical of Hungary. They see the, the government there as being authoritarian. They see it as a sort of pseudo one-party state, et cetera, et cetera. And there are people – other people saying, no, these, pe- these governments are actually voted in in free democratic elections, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it's a very complicated mix of things that are going on. And now we have a group of American conservatives looking to Hungary and saying, this is the future. And other American conservatives saying, no, it's not. I, I thought Jonah Goldberg had a really great line on this, which is you know, Lincoln Steffens, the famous muckraker who went to the Soviet Union and comes back and says, I've seen the future and it works. It's like this uh, group of American conservatives are going to Hungary and coming back and saying, I've seen the past and it works. <laughs> um, so, Steve, you watched the interview that uh, Tucker Carlson did with Viktor Orban. What what were your takeaways from it? Right. So, I mean, a couple of things. It's, it's always curious to me, you know, when you talk about different countries, each country has its own unique history, its own unique culture and development and so forth. And so to, to try to translate struggles or debates that we have here in the United States and just turn to Hungary as saying this is the, the example we need to follow is just kind of folly, in my opinion. Now, on the other hand, you know, I've heard on both sides of the debate, some people, again, accuse uh, Victor Orban as being an authoritarian. Uh, individuals like Tucker Carlson would give what I thought was a perfectly reasonable interview. It, he didn't ask a lot of hard questions. Uh, but, you know, the answers and listening to Victor Orban's response about the kinds of policies they have, I said, well, OK, it sounds quite reasonable. Uh, on the other hand, you know, I, I would keep an eye out for things that are going on in another country as signs of potential authoritarianism, such as suppression of freedom of the press or uh, perhaps uh, efforts to try to, to remove the checks and balances in, that you would have in an ordinary kind of liberal democracy, if those are the kinds of things that are arising, then that would be of concern, you know, and you could see individuals being alarmed by that sort of thing. But other than that, when it's debate over certain kinds of policy, you know, does a country have a right to regulate its borders and to use reasonable mechanisms to keep, uh, you know, uh, you know the, the laws being followed of that own country. Well, of course, a country has the right to do so, just as much as individuals have a right not to be feel like they have to be forced to migrate. And so, you know, we may, uh, the European Union may have uh, problems with some of these policies that you find in Poland or, or Hungary. Uh, nevertheless, there's usually much more complicating factors and each individual country has to assess those circumstances for themselves and do what's best for their people. So, you know, I watched the interview. I didn't find anything particularly alarming about it. It's just, once again, when you use a certain country overseas, I like that quip, you know, we've seen the past and it works. Yeah. Uh, you know, you have to be cautious. Oban's also a Christian. Yes. He's not, he's, um, he's a, Hungary's a majority Catholic country where there's a hybrid of religious participation. He, interestingly, is a reformed Christian. Yes, he's that's not right. Roman Calvinist, Catholic. Yeah. He's a Calvinist. Mm-hmm. He also was very active in the anti-communist movement that's right. before uh, the fall of the war. You can see pictures of him being arrested by the Hungarian secret police, etc. Right. I, I, I think it's interesting that that is presented as some kind of a defense for the idea that he could be an authoritarian as if like the only people who opposed communism were anti-authoritarians. There were plenty of people with their own stripe of authoritarianism who opposed communist regimes. I mean, the the dichotomy that existed between Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union is a perfect example of that. They were the Nazis were anti-Soviet, but that that's not to say that they weren't authoritarian. They very clearly were. Right, right, and uh, I think in the case of. Um Hungary, a lot of the stuff that you see being talked about that is um, – so, for example, the, the treatment of the judges, for example, that this has come up a number of times. It's important to remember that a lot of the judiciary in countries like Hungary and Poland is a hangover from the communist period 
We forget that. A lot of these judges were appointed right at the end of the communist era because the, the commies realized, okay, we want to make sure we have a lot of people who owe us favors, etc. So part of what's going on, not just in um, Hungary, but also Poland, is this legacy of the communist past and the, the fact that large numbers of the population actively collaborated with communist regimes. We forget that. We forget that there's lots of people who are now in their 60s, early 60s, late 60s, who are in positions of power. And the reason they're there is because they were part of the previous regime. So part of what's going on in countries like Hungary and Poland is they're trying to get these people out. But then you run into these issues of, okay, but what about the separation of powers? Right. What about executive and judiciary being relatively free to not interfere with each other? I mean, so there. this is where you see particular history mm-hmm. coming into conflict with some very important um, institutional settings that those who believe in liberal constitutionalism take very seriously. Thomas Sowell had this has this great line about before we start debating the merits of any given idea, we first need to ask the question, can it be done? Mm-hmm. And if it can't be done, there's not a whole lot of merit to debating the merits of it. I think he, <laughs> he gave this particularly in response to the idea of reparations for slavery. But I think it applies here as well, that the idea that we can take the policy regime of a specific Central European nation with the history that it has and that we can, again, with that's, I believe, about the size of South Carolina with the population of like of New York City and apply that to the United States of America, which, you know, is not a landlocked Central European nation. It is a continental nation with 50 states that all have their own uh, divided state governments uh, that is has its own unique history, just doesn't seem to be all that practical, um, even if you want to say that there's something that we can look to in individual policies. The There was a great essay uh, a while back in National Affairs from uh, Daniel Burns at the University of Dallas who had pointed out that the difference between uh, liberal theory and liberal practice. And no matter what debate we're going to have about the liberal theory that informed the founding of the United States, in practice, the United States is a liberal nation. I, we certainly can point to many of the things that alarm us, the streaks of illiberalism that we see in the United States right now. Um, but fundamentally, it's it's pretty hard to shake off that history, which Hungary just does not have. You know, you could say the very same thing about the Scandinavian countries. You know, so individuals are frequently pointing to the Scandinavian countries. Oh, look, you know, we should have democratic socialism like they have because it's going to work. <laughs> it works there. It should work here. Well, you know, irrespective of whether or not it's actually working is another, you know, the question, but I think whether it be Hungary more on the conservative right side or whether it be Scandinavian countries on the left, you know, I think it's it's an error to just point to those as an example of, hey, look, and let's just simply implement those kinds of policies here in the United States and it will all work out. It's also, so. it's also reflective of the highly strange debate that's going on within on the center right within the United States right now. Who would have thought that 10 years ago we'd have people arguing about Hungary's the Hungarian economy, 
population and economic policy <laughs> and then saying, OK, well, this is why we need to apply this policy, which it turns out doesn't work anyway, to the United States. It's, it's very, very strange that we're in this type of situation. And I think it reflects a sort of broad dysfunctionality within yes. across the right, the left as well, well, but also across the right in general. I'm, I'm old enough to remember when uh, suggesting the United States should be just like this nation sure. in Europe was the kind of thing that would make the right go to war against you. <laughs> that, that was, that, those were fighting words. Well, remember, I mean, I'm, Steve and I will certainly remember when we were, we, when we were teenagers, we were told Japan is yeah, the future. Yes, exactly. And there are all these books that came out saying the Japanese model is the model we need to follow. We need industrial policy. People right. on both the left and the right were saying Japan is the way that America needs to go economically. Then, and then suddenly, oh, Japan just slips into 20 years of stagflation. That's right. Yeah, MIDI <laughs> yeah, and industrial policy over there didn't quite uh, right. you know, have the long-run impact that everybody suggested that it would. <laughs> well, and with regard to, to Hungary, there's this great um, bit of dialogue in the movie Charlie Wilson's War where uh, <laughs> Philip Seymour Hoffman's character tells a story that, you know, this uh, young boy for his uh, birthday, he gets a horse and all of the people in the village say, oh, how wonderful. And the Zen master says, we'll see. The boy falls off the horse and breaks his leg and everybody in the village says, oh, that's so terrible. And the Zen master says, we'll see. Then a war breaks out and the boy can't go off to fight in it because he has a broken leg. And everybody in the village says, how wonderful. And the Zen master says, we'll see. I think the we'll see would be good advice for a lot of the people infatuated with Hungary right now, that it there may be plenty of people overselling the point of how authoritarian the regime is in Hungary, but we don't know what the future there is going to hold. So perhaps the right advice for all of them would be, We'll see. It's just like all these conservatives writing things like national affairs telling us that we need to be more like China. That's right. Yes. I mean, yes. seriously. <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's a very strange phenomena that we have people arguing we need to imitate an authoritarian communist regime if we want to have an economic future. Well, thank you for tuning in to the first episode ever of Acton Unwind. We appreciate you listening. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts if you would be so kind. Five-star reviews only. We'll see you next week.